Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out, and I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Jay Fields. Uh, she's an educator, a coach, and an author. We're going to talk about uh, how people can better manage their emotions. Um, she has a course that over 250,000 people have gone through, which is amazing. Uh, her mm -hmm. most popular one is called Managing Your Emotions at Work. Uh, obviously, she's big into helping people. Uh, so that's why I wanted to have her on the podcast. So Jay, thank you for coming. Thanks, Richard. It's good to be here. Yeah, tell me about, you know, a little bit about your history. Like, were you, what, what got you interested in emotions and managing them? Were you like a crazy person years ago or? You know, good question. No, not that I know of, but I definitely was one of those people that grew up being told that I was too sensitive, you know, grew up in a family that was a wonderful, loving family, but we didn't really talk about emotions that much. It was more about keeping things copacetic and, you know, keeping things emotionally between a very in a very small window uh happiness was okay but not not much else and um so i think 
you know, that is a story that I share with many of the people and the clients that I work with. But then where my work kind of started in, in my professional life was that I was actually a yoga teacher. I studied in my undergraduate years. Uh, my I designed my own my own studies and I studied psychosocial health and human movement. And it was kind of before this is in the late nineties, before the whole mind body connection thing was really in the mainstream. But I was curious about how it is that our connection to our body can actually be a resource for us in terms of our psychological and relational well-being, as opposed to what I had kind of always been taught maybe not directly but indirectly that your body is more of a liability your emotions are a liability try and disconnect from them and be a smart heady person oh so when you say you were taught that you mean growing up that's what your yeah your i mean told you yeah, i think yeah in my household and also you know i i believe at least in in the united states here in the west we we get fed unconsciously the message that it's better to be smart and productive than it is to be feeling and more being, you know, definitely get more positive reinforcement and feedback for uh, accomplishment and, and showing our acumen in terms of our intelligence than we do for showing our sensitivity. Do you think that what sensitivity is not uh, rewarded enough in today's society or, or what do you mean? Mm, not that I would say that it's not rewarded enough, but that it isn't embraced as a strength. Um, I was actually just talking with a client bef- before this call, and she's a scientist. She works in biotech, and she was talking about how, you know, yes, I'm a scientist, but I also happen to be a, a sensitive person who is disturbed by what's happening in the world around me in the news and you know, I come into work and nobody seems to want to talk about any of that. And it's, it's impacting me. And, you know, she was talking about how ultimately she's like, I feel like I have a strength that the other people on my team don't have and that they're more like the awkward heady scientists. And I'm more of like a heart centered person. And I feel like I could help just at least acknowledge like, Hey, today's kind of been a hard day. How do you guys feel? You know? And so we were talking about how that she sees that as a strength, but she's not sure that people on her team would. And I think that's a fairly common story. So are you trying to bring more emotions, for instance, into the workplace, or are you trying to help people that are already dealing with whatever emotions come from being in the workplace, how to deal with them better? Right. B, I'm I'm trying to acknowledge the fact that there are emotions in the workplace because we're human beings. You can't walk into work and and just shut the door behind you and decide you're not going to have a feeling. Feelings still exist there. And to the extent that we try to pretend that they don't or, you know, shy away from them, then we don't have resources. We don't have, you know, skill sets. And so I'm trying to bring to people this one, it's okay that you have an emotion because you're a human being. (laughs) And two, here's, here's how to, and work with them in such a way that it doesn't throw you off because most people tend to think of, you know, emotions are either something that take over, we get overcome by them, or there's something that we stuff down, but neither of those to avail you of your own presence, right? Like you lose, you lose your, your ability to, to think straight. You lose your ability to communicate clearly 
when you are either overcome by emotion or trying to pretend it's not there when it is. Okay. So, I mean, what are some of the common emotions that were, I guess they're just regular common human emotions, but um, like in your book, what, what have people told you they found the most helpful or what have they told you that they identify with which emotions most strongly? You know, I, people talk a lot about feeling uh, insecure, which isn't really emotion, but that's a, that's a, a feeling that comes up a lot. Feeling anger, feeling fear. I mean, fear is a huge one in the sense of just, you know, if you're at work and you're, you're trying to do your best, most people would experience at some point feeling like they're on their edge a little bit, you know, thinking about going into a meeting with a boss or giving a presentation to your team or anything where you feel like your job is on the line or an important relationship is on the line tends to bring up fear. That's a big one that people talk about. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. I mean, how would you better describe... So, okay, so someone's operating, let's say, in a state of fear, like low-level or high-level. So how have you seen that impact people's ability to work? Are they just unable to work or their their productivity goes way down? Or, I mean, what happens? Do they misjudge then other emotional cues that they get from their coworkers and their boss? So they, what, what's sure. the consequence of all this? Right. All of those things, I think it depends on the person. One of the things that um, people talk about is when when they're experiencing that low level fear of like, you know, my job is on the line or people are going to find out I'm a fraud or, you know, all those kind of underlying insecurities at work. One of the ways that it shows up then is people tend to overperform and become workaholic and, and burn out. You know, just they feel like they're they're constantly striving for something that is not necessarily a realistic goal for themselves and and they're they're burned out, but they feel like if they don't keep striving at that level, then bad things are going to happen. So yeah, like for what you said, it, it, it also then that low level fear does interfere with the, how you perceive reality. You know, people will think a teammate or a, um, a boss has more negative feelings about them than they do. Because one thing that research shows us about our, our nervous system is that when we are feeling dysregulated, like when we are feeling like there's some kind of real or perceived threat there, and we go into fight flight mode, we, we will inherently see the situation around us as, as something we need to fight against it's something, you know, something's out to get us and whether or not that's true, mm-hmm. it's definitely more of our perception. Yeah. I mean, if you feel like something's out to get you, then yeah, your behavior will, I guess, become somewhat, somewhat paranoid. Yeah. And you'll probably be more aggressive and short with people suspicious. And none of those uh, appear to be productive emotions, especially in the workplace. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, ultimately the work that I do with people is yes, we're talking about managing emotions, but really we're talking about liking who you are in the important relationships that you have in your life. So whether it's at work or whether it's at home, when you don't know how to manage your emotions, regulate your nervous system, the the reality is you act off in any number of ways, right? And off in a way that most people say at the end of the day, you know, they're like, ah, I just, I know I could have, I could have done that better. I didn't feel like myself. I wish I would have said this, you know, those sorts of things that you can't do cleanly in the moment because inside you feel like everything's going haywire. Interesting. So is your book a coaching program to help people deal with their emotions at work or to understand them? Or like, what's the, like, what's the skeleton of the book? What does it advise people to do? Oh, actually, the book that I have, Richard, uh, was something I published like 12 years ago when I was still teaching yoga. So the book is called Teaching Mm -hmm. People Not Poses. And that's that was where all this work kind of started, which was about at the time, the the career that I was in was in yoga, as I said. So I understood how to be an expert and a human being through the lens of being a yoga teacher. So I wrote that book and then that turned into more of a coaching practice where I was working with people from all walks of life and all different kinds of work scenarios about how do you show up as a human and feel good about like the integrity of your relationships in whatever you're doing. So that then all that coaching then led to me working with organizations and then that work with organizations led to me getting the um, LinkedIn learning courses. So the LinkedIn learning courses are the ones that are out there on how to manage your emotions at work and regulating your nervous system to manage stress. And those are the kind of forward facing programs I have that are very much work centric because of the platform that they're on. But I have my own coaching program that's called yours truly. And it it uses all of that information about managing emotions and regulating your nervous system that are in the the LinkedIn learning courses, but we go deeper into the more relational aspect of this work, which is once you know how to manage your emotions and regulate your nervous system, you can show up differently, but showing up differently means learning some new relational skills. And that's what that course is about. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So, all right. So what are some of the, um, helpful elements from the course can you give a like a few tidbits of what's helpful that you found from the yours truly course yeah just in general to to help people manage their emotions at work or uh you know at home with family etc like what what have you found are there a a few core principles that uh, seem to help sure yeah there's um you know one of the main things i talk about in my work is the difference between having embodied uh self-awareness and conceptual self-awareness and most people tend to have lots of conceptual self-awareness. And that's what we think of when we're thinking about ourselves. It's us thinking about our experience and analyzing and making sense of things and kind of projecting into the future what what might be necessary, looking back into the past and and gleaning insights from that. So conceptual self-awareness is the self-thinking about the self. But embodied self-awareness is the self-experiencing the self. So it's things like what temperature is your body right now? Are your hands cold? Are they warm? Can you experience uh, the places where your clothing is touching your skin? 
if you're standing or you're sitting, can you feel the parts of your body that are supported? Are you aware of yourself breathing? And the reason why embodied self-awareness is important is that research in neuroscience tells us that those pathways that get lit up in the brain when we have embodied self-awareness are the ones that have to do with helping us to regulate emotion, to attune to others, to behave with more courage and less fear and insecurity. You know, all these things that we think of as qualities of a really great human being. And we live in a culture that, like I said earlier, tends to way more heavily thinking and doing than it does feeling and sensing. And what what the research is telling us is that if you can sense and feel the sensations in your own body in present moment, it's putting you in touch with the internal resources you have to show up more authentically and with more integrity. So in terms of what's the, what's the like takeaway or the foundational tool that I work with people on is the first thing is start to develop some practices that help you to be aware that you exist from your neck down throughout the day. So things like as small as when you're in a meeting, wiggling your toes in your shoes and being aware that you're, you're doing that Um, or taking stretch breaks. And I don't mean like doing yoga. I mean, just like get up and put your arms over your head and take a big stretch and remember, oh yeah, I have a body. There's a practice called orienting that is simply looking around the room that you're in. You know, so many of us work on computers and when we're looking at our phone screens and that kind of narrow focus over time does not do us any good in terms of our nervous system. So just being able to look around and take in the different colors and the shapes and the objects that you see helps to open up that uh, your nervous system again to go like, oh, in this space that I'm in right now, there's no threats happening. I'm safe. I'm good. And typically what happens is you get like a, a spontaneously deeper breath or you notice yourself sigh. And those are all uh, indications that your your nervous system is regulating itself again. And just those little touch points with your body throughout the day cr- start to create a more solid foundation that your, your brain reads as like, hey, we've, we've got this. Like things are okay. I'm resilient. I know how to handle what comes up. It sounds like, um, I don't know, this would help people to battle anxiety or what, what particular yes. emotions or problems do you uh, have people told you that this has helped them with? Anxiety is a huge one that people reach out with it's just the kind of general social anxiety or anxiety of, you know, that, that underlying buzzy feeling that someone gets when they're anxious. So yeah, absolutely. You know, it's these these little practices that are about, you know, the simple things like feeling your, your toes wiggling in your shoes or stretching, or uh, even like tapping, tapping your hand on the side of your thigh. All of those things are about creating, they're called a felt resource. And a felt resource is something that you can feel in the present moment that is either pleasant or neutral. And what that's designed to do is that if you're having some kind of unpleasant situation, let's say you're feeling anxious or you're feeling scared, and that's an unpleasant sensation for you to also then notice that you can feel your toes wiggling, which for most people is probably a neutral thing, gives you this idea that, you know, it's true that I'm, I might be feeling anxiety. It's also true that I can feel my toes moving in my shoes. 
And what that does for your brain is it gives your brain, rather than that idea of being flooded by an emotion, you know, being taken over by an emotion, it gives your brain the experience that not everything in this moment is awful. Not everything in this moment is anxiety. I have this one layer of my experience that's actually pretty benign and neutral. And that helps your, your brain and then your nervous system to regulate and help you not feel so anxious. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, you know, people say observe your emotions, but you know, if you're really pissed off or if you're really upset or anxious, whatever it is, it's hard to say, okay, I'm feeling incredibly anxious right now, or I'm feeling incredibly pissed off. The emotion just seems to say, yeah, okay, keep going. It, it just like, uh, it, it just feels like it's like, yeah, that's great. You know, that doesn't help. Right. Right. Because it's, it's the only thing you are aware of in that moment. It just like, you know, the emotion has such a, a visceral power, but if you can bring one tiny aspect of your body in that moment, like if you're, you know, when I'm working with someone who's working with anger and they're like, yeah, I just get so hot and every muscle in my body tenses and I just want to scream. It's like, sure. Like you don't have to try and make that go away, but what I want you to do is try and create a container for it. Like be able to feel that, yeah, my hands, my hands might be really hot right now and I want to punch something, but I can choose to wiggle my fingers. And that's something I have control over. And it's something that isn't, isn't anger, right? Like just creating one small percentage of your experience that isn't that thing that feels like it's taking over actually really does begin to anchor and not so that you don't get taken over. I mean, what do people experience? You mean it diffuses the feeling, the intensity of it, or what does it do? I think the best way to describe it is that it, it makes it so it's not everything, you know, it in, so yes, it diffuses it. And what it's, what it's doing in your brain is that it's starting to bring back together the, the higher thinking part of your brain with that more base basic uh, primitive part of your brain that just wants to fight, flight, or fleece. So what it's doing is it's bringing back online the prefrontal cortex and the part of you that can think more clearly just by having the uh, embodied self-awareness of your fingers wiggling, your toes wiggling. It's That's what embodied self-awareness does, is it helps to bring, it reintegrates your brain when there's the sense of you flipping your lid. I don't know if you've ever heard of, this is the work of Dan Siegel, and this is brilliant work, but he talks about the hand model of the brain. And in the hand model of the brain, your uh, the base of your palm is the, the primitive part of your brain, the, like the lizard brain, the fight, flight, freeze. And then um, your thumb tucked in to your palm represents the middle part of your brain, the part of the brain we think of as like the mammalian brain, the part that has to do with memories and emotions and habit forming. And then your fingers wrap over your thumb and those fingers represent the the frontal cortex, the more human part of the brain. And what, if you can imagine that I now have my hand gripped in like a, my, my hand is making a fist. And what happens when we feel triggered by an emotion, something, something goes on at work or in our personal life and someone says something or looks at us a certain way. And all of a sudden you just flip your lid. 
Well, flipping your lid is your fingers basically going straight up. And so now that part of your brain that is the, the human part of the brain, the higher thinking part of the brain, it's gone, it's offline. And you're working with the, the lower parts of the brain that are really just about survival. And so what research tells us is that that embodied self-awareness, being able to name part of your experience in the moment as it's happening, it puts the lid back on. It brings your fingers back down, wrapped over your thumb and helps you to be able to, in the moment, cognitively make sense of the bigger picture. It makes sense why I feel this way. I understand what's happening. I don't have to lash out. I can process the feeling without having to blow it up all over everybody or myself. Yeah. You know, what's interesting. Uh, I was, you know, moving my hand around as you were saying this. So if you flip over your hand with the mm-hmm. palm size down and you draw your fingers together, you could say, all right, that's um, these higher level thinking supporting the underpinning of your, let's say reptile mind. And as you draw your fingers together, the reptile mind comes up vertically. So it elevates that. I know mm-hmm. maybe it's a silly reference, but that's just what I noticed by oh, that's cool. while you were talking. I did that with my hand. Maybe that's a, another analog. You know? No, I love that. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, that actually that hand model of the brain, again, it's not mine. It's, it's Dan Siegel's, but I've shared it with so many people and so many clients because it's such a great physical and and just visual experience of what it looks like when you flip your lid. And I know that people have used that actually as a, as a resource for themselves is like when they feel themselves wanting, you know, when they feel themselves triggered emotionally and and wanting to have a response or something like that, they'll actually make a fist with their hand and put their fingers back over their thumb and, and say like, I'm putting my lid back on and, and use that. Cause even to a five-year-old that makes sense. You know, it's, it's really accessible. You know, it's funny if you wanted to tease them though, you could say, what happens if all the fingers except the middle one come down and close the lid, but the middle one's still sticking? And that's called passive aggressive. Sorry, I, I don't know. I'm just teasing him through you. But anyway. <laughs> so what do people report to you after they have, let's say, read your book or gotten coaching from you? Like, how do they express that their life is different or better? I think the most common thing I hear is that people like who they are again and they feel like themselves. You know, they don't feel like they're either hijacked by their anxiety or um, they feel like they can be more confident in situations where before they only felt insecure. Um, I was talking with a woman yesterday who said uh, she and I are doing more work around her family. Well, she's she's an entrepreneur. So we're talking about her building her business, but also her connections with her family. And she was like, I feel like I finally know the people I love. And they know me because I'm not as, I'm not as walled off. I'm not as guarded. So it's this sense of like, I get to be myself and, and feel like who I am is okay. And in that be more connected to the people who matter to me. I mean, it's, it's kind of like fundamental stuff, you know? Oh, right. But yeah, I just wanted to see again, how people say they experience the benefit from it, from working with people. That's good. So, I mean, did you, did you put, did you dig any deeper? Like um, when people say they're, they feel more connected. I mean, what else did they say about that? It sounds like a general statement, but anyone give you any, any interesting stories or specifics that you run into with clients where something really beneficial happened or they experienced like a, I don't know, really life-changing realization. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it, it happens all the time and it, and it's, 
when I'm working with people one-on-one, Richard, it, it really is more about relationships than it is managing anxiety. Yes, we do work with managing anxiety, but if someone comes to me and they just say like, I'm feeling really stressed at work or I'm super anxious, I want somebody to help me manage that. I'm not your person because what I'm really interested in is what, why does that matter to you? You know, what is it that you want to look different in your relational life? And so everything, you know, in terms of stories, everything from I've recently had a woman who, who just had massively dramatic and bad dating stories for years and years, finally get to a place where she understood from the very get go in a relationship, like where it that it wasn't going to work, that this person wasn't considering her, wasn't respecting her. And she had the self-worth to stop dating people like that. And she's now in a healthy relationship. And two, two years in they're they're getting engaged. And we were just talking the other day and she was like, can you imagine the person I was two years ago when we were talking that I would ever be in this situation? You know, she's like, I just feel like I, I trust myself now. I can show up authentically. I'm not scared of being close to another person. Cause I think that's a thing that people often experience. The people who work with me is they, they don't have an experience of being able to be close with another person and not somehow be performing or people pleasing or, you know, just trying to keep the peace. So there's, you know, stories like that of dating and then uh, working with a woman, uh, another woman who's in a corporate position and just feeling like she never could get past that feeling of being a, a fraud, you know, that she was insecure, but outwardly she was the boss lady and she was just killing herself because she was working too hard all the time to try and prove who she was. And our work together was really interesting because over time, what she discovered was, you know, the more that she slowed down and tried to, and, and learned how to connect with what her own experience was in the moment and be able to speak more clean, cleanly about her experience, the more she was able to make and I'm using this word again, but make connections with the people on our team, like find common understanding and really be on a a more even playing field where she realized like, I don't have to be one up to these people. I don't have to, I also don't have to be one down and kind of pretend like I don't have any needs. We get to be equals. And her, she was explaining to me a couple of weeks ago that her team is just really performing well and people are happy and morale is high. They haven't lost anybody in, you know, they're, they have good retainment and she's like, and I'm happy and work doesn't feel like hell to me anymore. You know? Um, So those are some more kind of specific sort of things that people talk about and, and have the outcome from our work together. So, I mean, with the past two years of all this craziness, what is the change that you see in your clients are there are their needs different now? Uh, is their mental state better or worse? Like, what are you observing right now? Yeah, good question. I think um, in general, most most people are having a harder time. You know, it was it was a hard time for a lot of people. So I'm I'm definitely seeing more anxiety and um, more 
sense of intolerance of like, this just, I'm not, I'm not willing to deal with these kind of uh, problems anymore. Meaning like when shit got real in the world, as it were, people got more real with themselves too. And we're more willing to look at what's not working. And so I think in some ways people are in a tougher place because there is more anxiety and, and more just kind of sense of the unknown. But what I happened to see as well was more courage in the sense of, well, gosh, nothing really seems to be that stable right now. And all these things that I thought could be counted on might not be able to be counted on. So they were more brave in looking at what did they, what do they no longer want to tolerate? Whether it was a, a job that was, they didn't feel happy in or a relationship that they didn't feel like it was meeting what they wanted, you know, people were really more willing to create more discomfort in the sake of, of eventually feeling more fulfillment because they were already in so much discomfort. So you think it's it's nudging people in the right direction or is it doing both? Is it nudging some in the right direction and others that are just falling off a cliff emotionally? Yes, I think it's doing both. I mm. think, you know, and that has to do with just the how much resilience that person has, what their resources are, both in terms of financial resources, as well as emotional resources, relational resources, you know, like how much people who have more support systems in their life, I think are getting pushed in the the direction of what can I, how can I make this better? And the people who don't have the resources and um, don't have the support, I think are really struggling. So what do you, uh, what do you intuit that you need to do now? How, how have you been changing and altering your work with clients to help them? Well, recently what I, I did was change my, my model of working to from being one-on-one primarily to working in groups. And partly that was to, to be able to reach more people because I was having more and more people wanting to work with me one-on-one. And I'm only, I only have so many hours in my life that I can do that. But part of it is I, I see that that model of, of group learning when it comes to relational learning and relational healing is so powerful to be able to see that you're not alone, to be able to see that you're not crazy in the ways that you think only you are crazy, um, to see how other people are taking in these new concepts and these new practices and applying them bravely in, in their life. You know, I, I watch how people aren't, when, when I'm working in groups as opposed to one-on-one coaching, I no longer am like the, the end-all be-all or the person who has all the answers or the person that they need to be connected to. It's like they actually are accountable to each other and they're learning from one another. And there's a real sense of kind of everybody getting lifted up as one person has a success. You know, so I've changed my model to make it more community focused because I think, uh, one, people are feeling isolated in the last few years. And two, there's really good healing power in in having that sense of belonging and and being seen. Well, very good. Uh, Jay, what's the best place for people to find out more about your work, to get your books and to uh, maybe apply for coaching? Yeah. So it's my website, which is my name, J-A-Y dash fields f-i-e-l-d-s.com and they're right they can 
um, learn about my LinkedIn learning courses. They can learn about my group coaching yours truly program. And you can also just sign up to be on my newsletter list because I, I am a writer and I enjoy writing. And I send out an article every week talking about these kinds of topics with some tips and tools for how you might be able to start creating more of a felt felt relationship with yourself so that you can better manage emotions and regulate your stress. So that would be, there's all sorts of free resources there on my website in addition to the programming that I have. Okay. Well, very good. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Richard. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.